Amen. Would you please take your scripture and turn to Hebrews chapter 4. It is a fitting segue with that expression of our worship into this text. The, the prayer that we would be satisfied in seeing the love of God in Christ Jesus toward us as sinners. And then coming here to Hebrews chapter 4. To set the context, um, I'd like to start reading in chapter 3, verse 7. Um, I, I thought about that and thought, well, that's going to be a lot. But you remember when we came through Exodus? You remember those? That was a lot. This, this will be nothing compared to that. So I would invite you to look with me as I read from the Word of God, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 through the end of chapter 4. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test, saw my work for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an, unbelieving, an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listen. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest, although... His works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it. Those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day. Today saying through David so long after, and the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, 
sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eye of him whom we must give account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to its reading. You can be seated. Children, you can be dismissed to children's church. <clears throat> this lengthy warning passage, which we're going to review, is followed up by an incredible word of hope that Jesus is our high priest. I want to start this morning by inviting you to a sort of word picture, to see something. I want to invite you to see the Christian life like a sailboat. See the Christian life like a sailboat. God's commands serve the sailboat like the rudder. And the rudder may direct the ship away from danger toward its ultimate destination. And as important as the rudder is, the ship is powerless to move simply by the rudder, but is dependent on a strong wind to fill its sails. In the Christian life, that strong wind consists of what we would call resource. Resource found in the gospel that is essential to Christian living. So the rudder and the sails. When we find ourselves thinking only of the rudder or only of the sails, we lead into or we are led into a frustrating presupposition. So imagine that your sailboat had sails full of wind but was unguided. Or imagine that your sailboat has the resource for guiding but is not compelled or propelled. The author of Hebrews is obviously interested in both responsibility and resources. I want you to hang your thoughts on those two words for the rest of the learning from Hebrews 4. The author of Hebrews is deeply interested in both our responsibility, hence the warning. Lest having heard the truth of God's promises and for a while believing, have now not believed and fallen away. Responsibility. Keep on believing. But the author of Hebrews is also deeply interested in the gospel resources. So, for example, the requirement for Christian life, we could think of the commands, the, the rudder, 
that points the ship in its direction. And we would find in the description of Christian living, which is the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 21, verse 18, teach them to do everything I've commanded, Jesus says. Teach them to do everything I've commanded. That is responsibility. That's the rudder. And it matters. But to the author of Hebrews, and therefore hopefully to us, the resource of a sail filled with wind matters as well. Which also can be found in the Great Commission. All authority on heaven and earth is given to me, and behold, I am with you. That is wind in our sails. That is Christ for us, the hope of glory. This resource is summed up in our passage as a confession and confidence. So, I know that you have responsibility to learn to do everything Jesus commanded. But I want you to understand also that the resource of Christ toward us is imperative for Christian living. So rules by themselves not only are inadequate, but I, I'm going to propose are very dangerous. So this resource of confession and confidence. If your boat is to be compelled across the sea of life, then I would say it is compelled by this. A confidence that ours is access to play like children under the throne of God because we confess the completed redeeming work and ministry of the ascended Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest. It is confidence to come to the throne of God and play under the throne of God like a child in all of your oddities and shortcomings, but to do so confidently that you will not be struck down because Jesus has completed his redeeming ministry of death, burial, and resurrection, and is presently at the right hand of the throne of God, ever interceding for us as our high priest. That is what moves our boat across the sea of life. And I'm not denying the importance of the rudder and the guiding benefits of all of the instructions of Christ. However, I want to talk to you today about the resource. The priest and our confession. The priest and our confession. Now, we're in Hebrews chapter 4, and I want to review some of the notes of this warning. There are five warning passages in Hebrews. The one we've just covered, we've just come out of it, it's the longest one. It's the longest of the five. Let me review it. Look back to verse 7. What is the essence of the warning? A hard heart. It's an unbelieving heart. It is, apparently, from the text, the heart that once seemed to believe, but no longer does. That's why the analogy of the children of Israel, the first generation in the Exodus, is so helpful. 
They got up, walked out of Egypt by faith for two years across the wilderness. But then a time came where they were challenged to enter into the land by conquest, believing that God would provide for them, and they did not believe. So beware of a heart that once walked by faith, but now does not. Look at verses 12 through 15 of chapter 3. How is this warning to be applied? It's to be applied in the life of community of the people of Christ. Exhort one another. Look at verses 16 through 19. Why must the congregation warn each other, exhort each other to keep hope, keep wind in your sails? Because it is the congregation in the Exodus who had only for a moment believed, but then were told they will not enter my rest. Look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. The Lord explains that God himself has a day of rest and they will not enter into his rest. He had completed his work and there's another day called, quote, today. And they will not enter into that and we talk about that as the eighth day of creation. Look at verses 6 through 10. God spoke of the provision and our need for Sabbath rest, which is Jesus Christ. Now, verses 11 through 13, it is the efficiency, the sufficiency of the Word of God. What is spoken by God in His Word is totally true and reliable. It's precise. I'm actually going to study that section next week. But there is one part of it that I want to draw your attention to. Verse 13. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We will trick no one in the end. In our judgment, we will not pull a fast one. Who we truly are will be fully exposed. Okay, so in this introduction, I've given you a couple things. Gospel responsibility, the rudder, do everything Jesus commanded. Gospel resource, the full confidence, the confession that Christ is for us and that in Christ we have unbroken access to the very throne of God. And this delight and this joy is the wind that fills our sail and moves us forward by faith. And then verse 13. Understanding that the God who has spoken his word is a God who sees completely, entirely, everything we truly are. The final verses of chapter 4, the ones we're going to look at today, are a brief but incredibly powerful summary of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Now, the priesthood of Jesus Christ will be well taught in chapters 8, 9, and 10. But these three verses 
give them in a summary in a way that is really potent and helpful for us this morning. In this summary, we hear that Jesus Christ, our high priest, has passed through heaven. Jesus Christ, our high priest, has passed through heaven. But not only do we have a high priest who is heavenly or of heaven, we have a high priest who is of life, our life. A high priest who has passed through this life. And to build on that, a high priest who is presently seated at the throne of God, making it toward us a throne of grace and mercy. Okay, that is not a sermon, but it's an introduction. And I hope that you got it all because I'm very eager to teach it because I think it's a great blessing. If the warning is, be careful lest you stop being Christian. Those words are all chosen carefully. Be careful lest you stop being no article Christian then the provision is think about who Jesus is. Let me pray and then do just that. Father, thank you for the provision of the gospel. Um, I think, Lord, that our minds are a bit conditioned uh, to maybe fearfully or maybe just by nature of our productivity to think about the responsibility exclusively. Like, like what you've called us to is just following the rules and figuring it out. And God, I'm thankful for these three verses that tell us who God the Son is, our high priest. I pray that we would be better equipped and that our sails would be full again today of this delight in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. So walking through three of the points from three verses. In fact, if you look at the three verses, I would invite you to just highlight the introduction of each verse. Since, verse 14, for, verse 15, and let us, verse 16. I think you can see some progression of the help that we get from these verses in just those first three words. Look at verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, just in case we weren't sure who was the subject, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So this is implying that we should have a robust, concluded confidence. The high priest is our confidence firstly because he passed through heaven. So this long warning text finds its landing in this encouragement that is Jesus. Jesus has already been presented to the readers as merciful and faithful high priest. Here the reader is shown that how Jesus is the one from whom they receive the strength and from whom they will have their confidence grounded and how they will resist temptation to let go of their confession and fall away. And the 
provision is that Jesus has passed through the heavens. What's being emphasized here is the transcendence of Jesus. Jesus is a priest of heaven. Not like Aaron's priest. Jesus is a priest of heaven. Later on, the author of Hebrews is going to say in chapter 7, verse 26, that he is exalted high above the heavens. Paul says in Ephesians 4, 10, that Jesus ascended far above all heaven, that he might fill all things. Jesus is the high priest who ministers in the sanctuary of God. Now, maybe like me, your mind is provoked back to something that we went through in Exodus. Do you remember when Moses was told to build the tabernacle and he was shown a map, a blueprint of the tabernacle? Maybe you remember that. As I studied this text, I thought, wait, I know something about this. And not only did he see the tabernacle, the heavenly sanctuary that he would model and make the tabernacle, but he saw the ministering of the tabernacle. He saw the great high priest in heaven doing his high priestly ministry and turn your bibles to hebrews chapter 8 turn your bibles to hebrews chapter 8 now i'm looking forward to getting to hebrews 8 9 and 10 but as we've been given this three verse introduction to jesus our high priest i want to share with you the first five verses of hebrews chapter 8 hebrews chapter 8 Verse 1. Now the point, and what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne, of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So this is the one Moses saw, but not the one Moses made. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it's necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Those priests, they serve, or serve a copy, a shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. He, Jesus, is great high priest, not earthly, but heavenly, doing heavenly priesthood in the sanctuary of God, before God. He therefore is great. The contrast between what Jesus is as our priest and what any earthly priest could be. The Bible says that Jesus passed through. Passed through. As you read that in English, you think Jesus was headed somewhere and he had to go through heaven to get there. He passed through. It's, it's really a, a full part of speech. To say he passed through is a perfect participle, indicating that there's completed action with ongoing effect. In other words, Jesus is identified as the only priest who has offered sacrifice once and for all in heaven. So this great high priest 
who has once passed through the heavenly sanctuary of God and provided the sacrifice gift of himself. Therefore, the people of Christ should hold fast the confession. The end of verse 14. If it is the high priest in whom we trust, who has offered once for all sacrifice in heaven, then what are we worried about? Jay, during the moment of confession, reminded us that we probably don't have to think back very far to feel guilt over some things we've done in disobedience, in unbelief. And if you sat here this morning and were to be judged on the credibility of your behavior this past week, we would not have much confession to hold on to. But if we say that we trust only in Christ, and then the scripture expounds who it is that we trust, the great high priest who has once for all offered himself in sacrifice in the temple of God, before God, then let us hold fast our confession. You see, that's the wind in the sail. There are a lot of ways that we word it. We talk about building fences. In parenting, you can build fences around your children. You can build a fence. And the kids don't go outside the fence. And as long as the kids stay inside the fence, you know what's going on. Everything is okay. They're safe. You rest well. And the fence is a good thing. For a while, eventually they get tall enough, they step over the fence. And then what? We, we talk about a lot of different hopes and confidence. But here the text says, exhort one another with this truth. He is the great high priest. And hold fast to that confession. Do you believe that in spite of all your shortcomings, you could run today into the throne room of God and play like a child under his throne and not be condemned. And in answering that question, do you say, well, usually yes, but yesterday was a bad day for me. You see, I kicked the family dog. Or I was dishonest in some financial dealing. If you say, I think I can run to the throne of God and play like a child there, most days, but just not the days I really struggled, then I, this text is for us. First, our high priest is the high priest who passed through heaven, unlike any other. 
also our high priest has passed through this life he has come to our place and walked faithfully as our substitute look at verse 15 we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses oh and do we have weaknesses they're identified but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So what's our weakness? When we get tempted, we sin. That's one of our weaknesses. We get tempted, and we sin. We get tempted, and we sin. We get tempted, okay, we survive. No, nope, we get tempted, and we sin. That's our weakness. That's our condition. And he came, after passing through heaven, once and for all offering sacrifice, and came to our station. He condescended and took on human flesh and walked in our place and he was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin our high priest doesn't have our weakness he endures temptation but not sinning jesus the son of god in all of his transcendence is not diminished in humanity jesus the son of god is not disqualified by divine origin. Well, of course he lived sinlessly. He was deity. He was truly human. Truly flesh and blood. He himself endures every trial that we could undergo. But he remains steadfast throughout and has now passed through the heavens back to the very throne of God. Our author has already stated that in order to become merciful and faithful high priest, the Son of God had to be, this is back in chapter 2, verse 17, made like his brothers in every respect, able to help those enduring trial, and he himself endured trial and suffering. So here, the author repeats, Christ is high priest who sympathizes. He sympathizes with our weakness. How does Jesus respond to your infirmity, your frailty, your weakness, your impotence? How does Jesus respond? The Bible tells us sympathetically. He has been there. Tired, hungry, grieving. He has been there. Might you for a moment say, there were some things in this life that Jesus did not experience that I have experienced. That question is erased in the extent to which Jesus endured. So, you might ask, Jesus never had a child tragically die. He cannot sympathize with what I have experienced. And that is horrific in its scope. But the text reminds us that when it comes to enduring, scope is not the foremost factor, is it? Length is. Time is. And when we, in our weakness, are tempted with a broad scope of temptation, we do not endure as long as Jesus endured which was to the end 
forever, without end. So enduring temptation, weakness becomes not how many temptations we have faced, but how long we face them and yet are faithful. He remained triumphantly faithful through every test without any weakness of his faith in God. So the end of the verse. In every respect yet without sin. Let me read for you a quote from a book called The Theology of Prepositions. The Theology of Prepositions. Yet sin. The author says this, total and faithful endurance involves more, not less, than ordinary human suffering. Meaning, sympathy with the sinner in his trial does not depend on the experience of sin, but on the experience of strength of the temptation to sin, which only the sinless can know in its full intensity. He who fails yields before the last strain. So that's all of us. All of us in facing temptations have at one point or another yielded before the last strain, before the home stretch. But Jesus sympathizes but did not fail himself as he remains faithful. Now, <clears throat> I reread this point three or four times just this morning because I want to communicate it clearly. So I think if you can give me like three minutes of undivided attention so that you don't miss some important part of this. There is a dangerous false teaching about the gospel. It seems to be a sort of sanctified version of self-righteous moralism. But it denies Jesus. Let me, let me share a text of what I'm thinking. 2 Peter 2, 1. False teachers will be among you and they will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Okay? So watch out. There's some people who are going to teach things that will be destructive even to the extent that they will deny the master who bought them. Bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Many will follow their sensuality and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. I think in our setting right now as we read the word Many will follow their sensualities. We think, oh yeah, worldliness. I don't, I don't think that's the point. I think the point is personal appeal. Many will follow the argument of, now that you're a Christian, you're going to do pretty well. You're going to really please God. And if you find that you're not, try harder. And that sensuality of, ooh, I feel good about myself in that claim. That sensuality 
denies the master who bought them. So as I think about enduring temptation, I want you to understand that there is a new creation in us. New creation. Old things pass away. Things are becoming new. We are being progressively transformed in the image of Christ. I get that. But... Your regeneration, your salvation, justification, is not an invitation to some sort of partnership with Christ in Christian living. It must remain always dependent on Jesus. I would encourage you not to start tallying how many temptations you survived and how many you failed. But rather to simply remain as called into new living, I'm not denying new living, as called into new living, remain dependent on the master who bought you. Because the problem is, when you start to do mathematical equations about success and failure, success and failure, success, 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 and failure, you ignore the fact that to keep the whole law and yet offend any one point is to be guilty of all of it. So the contrast between your tally keeping and score keeping is look to Jesus who endured temptation in every way that we do, but is without sin. That's what I mean by there's a subtle, somewhat sanctified, false teaching about the gospel. Like, oh, you're a new creation. Now you and Jesus should do similar things. I understand imitation and likeness and transformation. I understand. But what I'm telling you is you in this life cannot stop ever being dependent on the way Jesus lived in this life. Number three. He is a high priest who has passed through heaven. He is a high priest who has passed through life. And number three, he is a high priest seated at the throne of mercy and grace. Verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Therefore, if we have that confession and we hold fast to it, Jesus offered sacrifice before God of himself in heaven. And therefore, let us come with full confidence to the throne of grace. This throne of grace is the very throne of God. Where Jesus, as our high priest, sits Exalted at the right hand of the Father. This throne is meant to be an antitype of the mercy seat in the earthly tabernacle and temple. It was at the earthly mercy seat that the work of atonement was completed in a token on the day of atonement, and the grace of God was extended to people. The priest had the pleasure of just for a moment being in the presence of God and offering the blood sacrifice of the Lamb 
poured out on the mercy seat. The presence of the Christian's high priest is a heavenly throne of grace. And it speaks of the work of atonement completed. Not in a brief token, but in reality, completed. Thanks to Christ's atonement, the throne of God is a mercy seat to which his people have access. I, I wonder how you feel. I wonder, when I've said it twice already, I'm going to say it again. Do you have a confession that you hold on to with confidence that you could walk into the throne room of God and play like a child under his throne? I wonder if you go, ooh, I would not survive. He is holy, too holy to look on sin. I would be annihilated. He would just end me. And I wonder if there's some part of you that says, I, I couldn't, I couldn't play around like a child. And all my weaknesses and shortcomings and imperfections, he wouldn't put up with me. The, the problem is, then we don't, in our time of need, come to his throne as though it's grace and mercy. We do other things, odd things. In one of the great sermons by Charles Spurgeon, he works through some of the implications of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And he says this, when it comes to approaching the throne, he gives three things. First, we will come with lowly reverence. That's true. There's no place for flippant pride or vanity. Spurgeon writes this in quote, His throne is a great white throne, unspotted, clear as crystal. Familiarity there may be, but let it not be unhallowed. Boldness there should be, but let it not be impertinent. So first, he says, when you approach the throne of God, let it be with lowly reverence. Second, <clears throat> we should come with great joy. Why? Because of the favor that has been extended to us by our high priest. And the great privilege it is to be there. Third, so not only is it lowly reverence, not only is it great joy, but third, as you approach the throne of God, it should include enlarged expectations. You are going to a throne full of power and goodness, to a king who sits on that throne, a king ageless without end. You should have an enlarged expectation. So these are three things that should be true. You go to the throne, you're reverent, joyful, and you expect great things to happen. But is that the story of your day? Is that the story of your week? So the point I want to add to that is that any approach to the throne must be based in confession and confidence. Confession and confidence. So, 
If we don't have the confidence that this text is drawing us to, we won't be reverent. We'll be resentful. Can, can you see the really thin line between reverence and resent? What might look like reverence is actually indifference compelled by resentment. You see that? You see that? We won't be reverent, but resentful if we, have, if we don't have this confidence of Christ in us. We won't be joyful, but we'll dread. If, if the congregation right now appointed any one of you to transcend to the throne room of God and walk into his throne and play like a child under his throne, do you feel joyful or terrified? Well, you picked me to go? <laughs> Thank you, that's so great. Or do you say, pick somebody else? I don't think I'll make it. Third, if we don't have this confidence, because of who our high priest is, we will not have enlarged expectations, but we will have premature fatalism. I can't pray to God right now. He's unhappy with me. Not only do I not expect him to do great things, I'm not even going to attempt because I know how he must feel about me after what I did the other day. So all of the reverence and the joy and the expectations are dashed because we don't have confidence in our high priest that the throne of God is a throne of mercy and grace. We come knowing that we will be favorably received, knowing that his is a throne of grace to help in our need. It's, it's that, if I may, that, that jumps back into that subtle false teaching. Like we're not needy. The very essence of the throne of grace and mercy implies we're needy. We're needy. And yet, we're tempted. We hear this voice saying, you can't go there until you're not needy anymore. You go there when you are needy. Man, two decades ago, saw me at the back door of a church service and said, I have to confess, it's been months since I felt like I was fit to pray or even read the Bible. What do I do now? And I said, don't go home yet. Go into one of the classrooms and pray and read your Bible. He felt unfit. I'm not worthy of the throne of grace and mercy. Exactly, that's why it's the throne of grace and mercy. Because you're needy. And it's fit for our time of need to be our help. Why? Because the high priest has passed before God and once and for all completed sacrifice. He's gone ahead of us through this life, lived it perfectly in our place. And he's gone now back to the great throne of God 
where he ever intercedes for us. A lot of Christians, and myself, I'm included in this, I know this struggle because this is my struggle. I have so often these feelings of inadequacy because of my own shortcomings, my own imperfections. I know the sins that I continue to deal with and think, how can this still be there? And I, I, who will deliver me from this? I think Christians do struggle with that. And let me add to that, I think young Christians struggle with this. If you're under the age of 25, I really, really, really want to say something to you. Um, it's easier for people like me to teach you the rules than to teach you the wind and the sails. It's just easier. It takes less time, and it's just easier. It's, it's functional. And so, as a young Christian, you probably heard first all the rules of Christianity. And you might right now be in a season where you're frustrated because you think, that's Christianity? And then the pressure you start to feel is that you somehow have to work your rudder back and forth fast enough to propel your boat across the sea. And, and you might right now be thinking that and going, I don't want to do that anymore. And I don't want you to do that anymore either. Because I think it's, it's no one meant to do it. And it, if, if it's your experience growing up, you know, I... I I'm sorry it happened. No one means to do it. We're not trying to be malicious. It's just easier to teach the rule part. And there's a certain degree of safety. Like, like we want to tell our children, don't steal. The consequences of a life of stealing scare your parents. And so they say, just don't steal. God does not want you to steal. But we want to get to a point where we tell you, like what Paul learned, I have learned in every state to be content. That godliness with contentment is all of my need. You see, so we teach you don't steal. But by God's grace, we'll get to teaching you why you don't need to steal. Because you have everything you could ever want in Jesus. You don't need that thing. So you might be here and thinking, I am tired of flapping my rudder back and forth to try to get this boat to move. And I want you to understand that we get to the end of this long warning, and the hope is, who is Jesus? We might have a moment where we tremble at the thought. of our sails being full of a confession that we hold confidently. I can go and play like a kid under his throne. And we go, ooh. I want to raise five objections. I want to eliminate all your objections and say this. The great white throne. Radiant throne of God. 
It illuminates all that's before it, right? Back up to verse 13, please. No creature is hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who we must give account. We're afraid of the throne because the light of it exposes who we truly are. We are children of the light. Men love darkness because their deeds are evil. But we're children of the light. And here we come to the throne. And its radiance exposes. And everything is known. Here's my question. What does the brilliant radiance of the throne of God reveal? It reveals a robe made white by blood given to you by the high priest, Jesus Christ. You might be tempted to think, oh, if I'm there naked before the throne, I'll die. And what you need to understand from the promise of Scripture is when the light comes on and you're in the throne room, it's going to show that you're covered in alien righteousness, a goodness that doesn't originate with you but was gifted to you. The white robe of Christ himself. We need to find ourselves thinking not just of the rudder, but also of the sails. We need to guard ourselves against some sort of frustrating presupposition of aimless emotion or controlled inactivity. Thinking that it's our place to obey the commands and do the Christian life, or that all we need is the wind of Christian enthusiasm and confession, and we'll be okay without the direction of command. The author of Hebrews gives us both. Responsibility, teach them to do everything that I've commanded, and resource, and don't for a moment do the things he's commanded by your own power or by your own desire. But rather, the full confession and confidence of who Christ Jesus is as high priest, heaven, earth, at the throne. That the throne of God will be, as it truly is, a throne of grace and mercy in your need. Let's pray. Father, your son is magnificent. His priestly service is unspotted, full sufficient. His reconciling work is finished and not dependent. We are weak and frail. Who will deliver us? Oh, wretched men and women and children that we are. But we conclude that in Christ there is no condemnation. And we run boldly 
toward a throne that by the blood of Christ is a throne known for mercy and grace. Father, cause your people to fix our eyes on Christ and his completed work. And therefore to come joyfully, to come reverently, to come confidently to your throne over and over and over as long as our need remains. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand with me and we'll sing together.